Heavenly Father, each week we sing and we pray and we declare that You are worthy of all glory, honor, and praise. Each week we claim that Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Many of us, Father, know this in our minds and we believe it by faith. And yet, if we are to be honest this morning, we would also acknowledge that we don't live our lives in accordance with these truths. I ask, Lord, that you would change that this morning. That you would take what we know to be true and what we believe to be true, and you would align our lives with that. That we, as your people, called out of the darkness, brought into the light of Christ, made priests in this kingdom, that we would live every day in the big things and in the small things in a way that brings you honor and glory. I know, Father, it is a simple prayer and certainly one that you can answer. But most of us struggle with the idols and the broken cisterns in our lives. Most of us worship you well for an hour and a half on Sunday and not for the remainder of the week. I pray, Lord, that would not be the case anymore. That you would use this holy day and your Holy Spirit to permanently change us, causing us to see your holiness as we did last week in Revelation 4 and causing us to see the Lamb of God here in Revelation 5, and so capturing our hearts that we are truly forever changed. We want to be a people that brings you honor and glory and testifying your goodness to this broken world. Compel us to that end, I pray. Do it for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. title of the sermon is Worthy is the Lamb. We just had a chance to sing the song by Andrew Peterson written from that chapter. It is, even though we're still in chapter 5, it's a glimpse of the end. We're going to spend chapter 6 through 21 looking at how that plays out and then it culminates again in 22 with the end the glorification of God by all creation. It is a fantastic story, not only because it is true, but because the ending is so glorious. Stories with a good beginning and a captivating middle, but a bad ending make for bad stories. Most of the postmodern movies that they tried 15, 20 years ago, they didn't take. Because we are story people. Being part of God's creation, fall, redemption story, as those made in His image, we are part of the great story, the great narrative of all creation. And therefore, we want to hear a good story with a good ending. It's part of our DNA. In the year 2000, DreamWorks and Universal Studios, they released the blockbuster hit Gladiator, 
the leading role played by Russell Crowe was that of General Maximus Decimus Meridius. And he was the general of the Roman armies. Um, He was considered the most honorable man in Rome. Because when offered the title by Caesar, he said, no, I will not take it. He lived his entire life for the glory of Rome. And after being betrayed by the evil emperor Commodus and sold into slavery, the movie ends in the most fantastic fashion where General Maximus gives his life for the glory of Rome. He sets Rome free from the tyranny of the emperor, the evil emperor Commodus. He saves the lives of the emperor's sister and nephew. He brings justice to his murdered wife and son by taking the emperor's life and he restores the power of Rome to the Senate. The movie was nominated for 12 Academy Awards and won five, including Best Picture and Best Actor. And I believe that is the case because the movie resonated, whether we were conscious of this or not, it resonated with so many because its ending resembles the glorious ending of God's story, where a hero gives his life for the glory of another, and in so doing, he not only sets people free from the tyranny of evil, but he emboldens them to live for others too. This morning, as we enter the throne room of God once again in Revelation 5, we will get a chance to see the hero of God's story. Not a Roman general, praise God, but a sacrificial lamb, a savior who gave his, he gave his life not for the glory of Rome, but for the glory of God. And through his sacrifice, he is able to bring God's great story of redemption to its proper close. Judging all evil, saving God's people and restoring a broken creation. It is the greatest ending to the greatest story ever told, and if we have ears to hear this morning, we will not only get to see how God's story ends, and we want to know that, but we will see our part in it, how we are to live in light of the ending of this great redemptive story. And I pray that it is as a forgiven, redeemed, God-glorifying people So let's do that. Let's jump back into the throne room and let's join the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the myriad of angels that are worshiping God and the Apostle John. And let's do that by having a look at the end of God's story in three ways. In some way, there's a director's cut in here. Number one, a bad ending. Number two, a good ending. And number three, the God-glorifying ending. The bad ending, the good ending, and the God-glorifying ending. The theme of the sermon is this, and I pray you will listen with all your might. The theme is this. All creation, worshiping the glory of God, is the end of God's story. All of creation, worshiping the glory of God, is the end of God's story. So it doesn't matter what story you've created in your mind as to how your life might end or how the world might end. That's how it ends according to the word of God. So let's look first at the bad ending. 
Look at verse number one with me. John says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So remember from last week, John gets a a picture of God the Father seated upon the throne. And now he notices that in the Father's right hand is a scroll, and the scroll has writing on both sides, which was irregular for that time. Most scrolls only had writing on the inside, so the courier could not see what was on the outside. But this scroll is similar to the two-sided scroll that the prophet Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapter 2. In other words, the, the message was so full that it had to be written on both sides. But unlike Ezekiel's scroll, which was filled with words of lamentation, mourning, and woe, this scroll represents the final stage of God's redemptive plan for history. The events, listen, between Jesus' exaltation and his coming again in glory. It's where God's glory is going to be magnified in the judging of all evil, the saving of his elect, and the restoration of all creation. This is what's written upon this scroll. But John also sees that the double-sided scroll has seven seals on it, rendering the scroll inaccessible to all but the one authorized to open it. Look at verse 2. He continues, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seal? Now the scroll was obviously sealed by God or sealed in the name of God and this mighty angel asked the most obvious question. If it's sealed by God, then who is worthy to break the seal? Who is worthy to open the scroll? Now certainly you'd say, well, can't God the Father do that? He's God, he has that power and the answer is yes. Of course he could open the scroll and read the scroll but that's not the question the angel was asking. The angel's asking who can break the seal, open the scroll and fulfill it? Who can do and accomplish what the scroll calls for being done? And that is the restoration of creation and the redemption of sinful man. The question being asked by the angel was who is worthy to open the scroll and complete God's plan of redemption? Who is able to finish the great creation, fall, redemption, restoration story? Who is worthy? Look at verse 3. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Verse 4, and John says, And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. It is a most devastating statement. It is a statement that's essentially saying we have creation and fall but no redemption and no restoration. The story ends with the fall. So devastating that John says nowhere in the tripart division of the entire cosmos, not in heaven, not on earth, not under the earth, there is no one suitable to enter the throne room, take the scroll, break the seal, and finish the story. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Not some sinless, powerful, majestic angel, it's not one of the four creatures we saw last week, is able to finish the story. Not the most noble man or noble woman to walk the face of the earth. Not even one of the greatest men or women of the past. John surveys all of human history and there's no one in heaven, earth, or under the earth that can do this great work. And so what does he do? He weeps loudly 
And that is the right response. He mourns deeply with a sense of hopelessness because if that scroll cannot be opened, if that story cannot end with the glory of God through the redemption of man and the restoration of the fallen creation, then it ends with sin and death. And John saw that, and so he wept. It is a horrible ending to God's narrative, especially for mankind. Remember, my beloved, in the beginning, before the narrative took a turn for the worse, mankind was created in the image of God to know, love, and be loved by God, to rule with God as vice regents here on earth. But man, as you know from Genesis chapter 3, we were not satisfied in our relationship with God, and we were not satisfied with our role in God's creation. We wanted more. We wanted what? We wanted to be like God. And so we forbade God's command. We ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in so doing, we condemned ourselves to an eternity without God, without eternal life, without the good ending to God's good story. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, mankind has not only been sinning against God, but we are fully aware that we are sinning against God, that we are living our lives in direct violation of the law of God because the law of God has been written upon every human heart, so we know we're not living as God has called and commanded us to live. We know. We know we lie. We know we cheat. We know we steal. We know we lust. We know we covet. We know, my beloved, that the majority of our lives are spent serving ourselves and not others. We know that. We know the good that we ought to do that we do not do. And we know the evil that we continue doing. And we know that we cannot stop ourselves. That we have no power in the flesh to stop living in the flesh. We know that we need someone to save us from this awful mess of God's story that we have made as a result of our own sin. We know that a story, this story without a Savior, ends badly for all of us. We know that. And so what do we do? If we don't come to Christ and put our faith in Christ, we try to find other saviors, don't we? I mean, we're very creative that way. Mankind is excellent about finding saviors that are not the true savior, Jesus Christ. We search for saviors in heaven by creating our own gods. We create gods of our own liking, gods that have no standard of holiness, no expectations of human behavior, and no eternal judgment. We create gods that approve of everything that we do. And that God, even if we do sin, will not hold us accountable. We even try to find saviors on earth seeking salvation in our own successes in careers or education or relationships or parenting. We look for savior-like qualities in people and we follow them. Today we follow them on social media and we call them influencers in politics and fashion and entertainment and finance and we think that's my savior. My beloved, we even seek saviors from those under the earth, don't we? People from the past, movements from the past and we hear people saying, if we can only get back to that place where we used to be, if we can only become that mythical Christian nation, if we can only become more conservative, if we can just get someone like Ronald Reagan back in the White House, then things will be good again and we will have our Savior. But even a moment of serious contemplation, and probably why you laughed, tells us 
that none of these saviors will do. None will do. Not one of these saviors can pay for our sins. Not one of these saviors has the power to forgive us of our sins. Not one of these saviors can wash us clean and make us ready for the judgment seat standing before whom? The holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Not one of these saviors can stop the consequences of our sins and that is physical and spiritual death that awaits us all without Christ. So if we are being honest with ourselves, our answer to the angel's question is the same. He says, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who is worthy to take the mess that we've made and make things right for the glory of God and the redemption of man? And the answer apart from Christ is no one. Not you, not someone in heaven, not a false savior on earth. No one. That is the only response apart from Christ. And therefore, weeping and mourning is the right response. Weeping deeply for yourself, deeply for your loved ones, and deeply for all mankind. Because without a Savior who is worthy, the story of mankind ends in pain, suffering, and eternal damnation. And that is a horrible ending, which makes it a horrible story, if that is in fact how it ends. But by God's grace, we can be so thankful because the good news of the gospel is that there is someone who what? who can open the seal, who can break it and open the scroll and fulfill it. There is someone. Point number two, I hope you're not discouraged. Here's the good ending. Here's the ending that God will usher in. Look at verse five. Remember, John is weeping because he realizes that apart from the Savior, there is no hope. One of the elders, one of the 24 angels, if you remember from last week, said to John, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So one of the 24 angels has compassion on John. And he says, Stop weeping. There is someone. There is just one someone who can take the scroll, who can open the seals, one who has already conquered one who lived a perfect life of faith and obedience to God. One who did in fact die and rose from the dead and has the power to grant eternal life to all who repent and believe. And then he says, and this one, he identifies him as the Lion of Judah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the Root of David. Now you have to say, well, what, what does that mean in the context of the Old Testament? It's not complicated. My beloved, I pray that as we work through this, you're finding Revelation to be far less complicated than you thought it was and far less complicated than some people like to make it. It's not complicated. The tribe of Judah was promised by God to be the tribe that would rule not only over the other 11 tribes of Israel, but over all enemies forever and ever. This was the promise God made to the tribe of Judah and therefore they're called the Lion of Judah, Genesis chapter 49. And this future promise of the tribe of Judah reigning supremely was extended and clarified in the covenant that God then made with King David that from the tribe of Judah and the Lion of David God would establish an eternal throne and an eternal king. And from the root of David 
fulfill the covenant promise made to Abraham. What was that promise? That through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed in the saving of many from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, a branch from his root, the root of David, shall bear fruit. That's bearing fruit in the saving of many. In other words, this one who is worthy, he is the line of Judah, he is the root of David, and he will prove God faithful, that God's prophecy and God's promises will be proven here. He will take the scroll, he will usher in the consummation of human history and the redemption of many souls from many nations. So John stops weeping. Well, the angel told him to, and he has good reason to. He said, there is one. We're not hopeless. John stops weeping, and he begins to what? He begins to look for the one who is worthy. And he gazes, he casts his eyes up, and this is what he sees. Look at verse 6. John says, in between the throne and the four living creatures, so there is the lamb, this lamb, in between the throne and the four living creatures. And among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now this is important and the words here are important. The lamb is standing because the lamb is alive. But John is able to discern that even though the lamb is alive, at some point in time, that lamb had been slain. That lamb had been killed, but now lives. You say, well, I know who that lamb is. That's Jesus Christ. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's what John the Baptist said. And he died on the cross and he rose again on the third day. That's Christ. Get excited. That's the lamb. It's Jesus. And you should be excited about that. Now what's striking and, and I think somewhat confusing for us is the language used here to describe the one that John sees is different than the characteristic we just received. He looked up and he probably, remember, he's, he's probably looking for a lion, right? The lion of Judah. The lamb had yet to be mentioned here. A lion who was fierce and ravenous and devouring his enemies. And John's looking for that one. But instead, he finds a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb who had been sacrificed and came back to life and now reigns in the power of the Holy Spirit. Look how he describes this lamb at the latter part of verse 6. This lamb had seven horns and seven eyes. Now, Again, this is symbolic language. Do not picture a lamb with seven horns or seven eyes. That's a really ugly picture. Okay, don't do that. It, this is real simple. The seven horns, rep, a horn represented power. And so seven horns is perfect power. So this lamb had all power. And seven eyes represented perfect sight or perfect omniscience, perfect knowledge. You say, oh, wait a minute. So this lamb has all power and all knowledge. That sounds like God. Good. The Lamb of God is also God. Jesus Christ. So, what John sees here is extraordinary theologically. Remember, he's of the line of Judah and the root of David, which means he's truly man. And he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing, which means he's what? He's truly God. He is the God-man, this Lamb who stands between the throne and the four living creatures. This is the God-man we know to be our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is able, this, there's a great little addition here at the end of verse six. We know he's God because he's able to send out the Holy Spirit to redeem his people. The seven eyes, John tells us, also represent the Holy Spirit, which we saw from Revelation chapter one, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. This is indicative, no doubt, of Pentecost. 
Right? Remember at Pentecost, what happened? The Holy Spirit descended. Many were born again, and the church was born. And Jesus had promised the disciples, when I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit. Again, not complicated. Now, after seeing the Lamb, John says this. Look at verse 7. And he, speaking of the Lamb, went, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. He went up, and he took the scroll out of God's right hand. This is the climactic verse. This all-powerful, all-knowing lamb who was slain but now lives and reigns, he was worthy in the eyes of God to take the scroll and finish the story. He is able to complete the restoration of God's creation. He alone in all the universe is counted worthy by God to fulfill the promises of God. And the question should be, at least it was for me, why just Christ? Why couldn't there be somebody else? Why is Jesus the only one who could take the scroll and finish it? Certainly, there must have been an angel, powerful enough, majestic enough, sinless enough to do that. Or maybe some human being that lived at some point in time. I mean, couldn't, couldn't Abraham or Moses or David take it? How about Peter or Paul or even John? I mean, John, he's, he's in... The highest heavens, the angels tell us why it could only be Christ. Look at verse 8. And when he, the Lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. So all, this is amazing, all those who were worshiping God, the holy, holy, holy God upon the throne in Revelation 4, are now also bowing down and worshiping the Lamb who was slain. We're told at the end of verse 8 that each holding a harp, the harp was symbolic of, of their great joy. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And of course, these are the prayers of what? These are the prayers for deliverance. These are the prayers of salvation. These are the prayers of the saints throughout the centuries. That says, God, do not let my story end badly. They're all answered here. Because the Lamb is worthy to take the scroll, the lamb has the ability to complete God's plan of restoration. You say, well, I still don't know why. Well, the angels tell us, but they sing it. They're going to rejoice in song. Look at verse nine. And they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you, speaking of the lamb, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Verse 10, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So why was the Lamb of God worthy to take the scroll that no one else could? Why was he able to open the seals and complete God's redemptive story? Because it was not the work of the line of Judah, destroying his enemies. On the cross, it was the Lamb who was slain. It was the spilling of the blood of the Lamb that offers hope for sinful man. You see, my beloved, the sacrificial Lamb played a significant role in the history of Israel. And so we should not be surprised that it plays a significant role in the throne room of God. The most prominent, of course, that you probably know well is the Passover Lamb. And certainly those hearing this letter read were thinking that the Passover Lamb slaughtered on the night that the angel of the Lord descended upon Egypt 
inflicting the tenth and final plague by killing the firstborn throughout the land. The firstborn all except those in the homes where an unblemished lamb had been sacrificed and the blood had been put on the doorpost of that house. So significant was the Passover lamb that God instituted it as a commemoration. Passover. For centuries, lambs were sacrificed and you would enjoy a Passover meal, a Seder, in memory of this this great Passover that God passes over and saves through death those who have a sacrificial lamb. For centuries, this has been practiced even by Orthodox Jews today. And then even in the temple, I don't know if you know this, in the temple, first in the tabernacle, and then in the temple in Jerusalem, every single morning and every single evening, an unblemished lamb was sacrificed to God on behalf of the people as an atonement for sins of the people. So they know the concept of lamb well. The sacrifice of the lamb meant freedom and restoration and salvation for God's people. And then, of course, we know the great passage from Isaiah 53 where the future crucifixion of the Savior is described and he's portrayed as what? A lamb who was led to the slaughter. So the new song reveals this lamb that is in Revelation chapter 5 before the throne. This is the Passover lamb. This is, these are, he is the burnt offerings that atone for sin that they practice for centuries, morning and evening. And he is the Isaiah 53 suffering servant. He is the one who bore the iniquities of us all so that by his wounds we might be healed that our story, what, ends well. Not in death, but in life. Not in judgment, but in salvation. And therefore they sing, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals. Worthy are you, Lamb of God, to fulfill the work of redemption because you made the necessary sacrifice on the cross to save sinful man. Remember last week as we were ushered into the throne room and we we understood that the cherubim protected access to God by sinful people and the glassy sea? Well, Jesus Christ comes in and through his work on the cross, the breaking of his body, the spilling of his blood, the receiving in his flesh the due penalty of our sins, which is the equivalency of an eternity in hell, the work was significant And it satisfied the holy wrath and holy justice of a thrice holy God opening the door to you to salvation. A sacrificial lamb, not a ferocious lion, was needed to open the scroll and bring history, all of human history, to its God-ordained end. Look at the latter part of verse 9. For you were slain, speaking of the lamb, and by your blood you ransomed people, For God from every tribe and tongue, every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus is the only one who could take the scroll from the hand of God and finish the story. He's the only one because Jesus is the only one who died and rose from the dead. The only one who conquered and then by his blood enables us to conquer too. To change the end of your story. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, your story ends horribly. It is only judgment. It is only death. It is only eternal damnation forever and ever. And that's a bad story because that's a bad ending. But Jesus, for all those who repent and believe and follow him, he says, I'm going to change your story. He says, I'm going to change you for being 
a rebel at odds with God into what? Into kingdom citizens. Citizens of the kingdom of God who worship and serve God joyfully. He said, I'm going to take sinners in desperate need of reconciliation and I'm going to make you priests. Priests of God who do what? Who reconcile the world to God. Jesus said, through my sacrifice, the Lamb of God says, through my sacrifice, I'm going to take powerless enemies of God like you and make you able to one day reign with me, Christ says, on my throne. Look at verse 10. He says, in you, the Lamb, you have made them, all the redeemed throughout the centuries, a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. All these promises fulfilled because of the work of the Lamb because of the death and resurrection of the Lamb. This, my beloved, is what makes the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ such good news. God's story of redemption, the meta-narrative of human history, it ends well because of the Lamb. All evil, all sin, and death itself will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire because of the Lamb. All who repent and put their faith in the Lamb will be saved to eternal life, becoming citizens and priests and rulers with Christ because of the Lamb. And all of creation, all of creation, as we had a chance to sing, which now groans under the weight of our sin, will be set free and made new, all because of the work of the Lamb. He is Worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Is he not? The question you want to ask yourself right now is, is this one who is worthy to take the scroll out of God's hand? Is this one who is worthy to draw the curtain and bring all of human history to a close? Is he to you, listen with all your might, is he to you a lamb or is he a lion? Is he a lamb or is he a lion? You see, my beloved, Jesus, he is both. He is the lion of Judah who will destroy his enemies. And he is the lamb of God who will redeem the elect. He is a lamb to all who have turned from their sins, put their faith in him, and have sought refuge at the cross. If you have done that, then he is your lamb. It's his blood that is your covering It's his blood that provides the Passover of death in your life. You will not be judged if Christ is your lamb. You will not be sentenced to an eternity in hell, but you will become citizens of the kingdom, priests of God, reigning with Christ upon his throne forever. That's your end. That's a true story. But he is also, listen, he is also a devouring lion. He is the lion of Judah who will devour every single enemy that sets himself up against God so if you remain in rebellion against him if you refuse the father if you refuse the kingdom if you refuse salvation then this lamb is a lion to you and he promises to cast every single person who refuses salvation into the eternal lake of fire where the end of the story is all bad where there is only what the eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth Is he a lamb to you or is he a lion to you? How can you know? How can you know? 
Now we know, listen, we know from God's word that it's not simply those who make a profession, get baptized, and go to church. We know, Jesus said very clearly, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform miracles? Did we not do many great things in your name? And we know Jesus will say to many what? Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. We know the Bible says that. So this is not sufficient, my beloved. You say, well, I'm here on Sunday. I'm worshiping God on Sunday. Not sufficient. The Bible makes it clear that those who belong to the Lord are those who rejoice in God's glory. Those who belong to Jesus Christ are deeply satisfied with how God's story ends and therefore what? Live our lives right now in accordance with that ending. Point number three. I pray you're still with me and I want us to ask the question, lion or lamb to us? the God-glorifying ending. You see, John wept because he thought the story ended badly. The lamb was revealed to to show us the story ends well. That the story really, the culmination of the story is the glorification of God by all creation forever and ever. The true ending of the creation, fall, redemption, restoration story is the maximum glorification of God without sin by all creatures forever and ever. Look at verse 11. John continues, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So when the heavenly court, when they realize that there is one who is worthy, when they see the Lamb go and take the scroll out of God's hand and fulfill the prophecies and all the promises that God had made to fallen creation, they erupted in worship. It was an eruption. And anybody standing there would have probably fallen over by the sound that they heard. They realized that through the Lamb, judgment would come. The judgment of all evil. The salvation of God's people. And the restoration of this broken creation. And these angels, the four living creatures, the 24 elders. And it says, an innumerable number, thousands upon thousands, break out in loud adoration of God. Oh, it is incredible to think about. Look at verse 12. They're crying out together, the tens and thousands, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Now these attributes you, we heard last week, power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, they are all characteristics of what? Of worship. Worship. Rightly given, we would say last week, certainly should be given to the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Because of who he is, Revelation chapter 4, and now simultaneously be given to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Same worship, same adoration, now to the Lamb as well. They declare him worthy. Now previously, in verse 2, 4, and 9, that word worthy was used to describe Jesus' ability to go and take the scroll and finish God's story. But that's not the same words being used here, but a different A different meaning. Here they're saying the Lamb is worthy of what? Of divine worship. He's worthy of the same glory and honor that God the Father seated upon the throne receives from all the angels. And he's worthy because he died and rose again to finish God's story. 
because he gave his life for sinners like us so he could open the scroll and bring to completion the redemption of sinful men. In other words, the Lamb of God is worthy of all power, wealth, might, wisdom, honor, glory, and blessing forever and ever, not simply because he is God. He is worthy of it because he accomplished the work of God's redemption. Do you see that? The primary distinction between Revelation 4 and Revelation chapter 5 is the work that Jesus completed for the redemption of mankind that makes him worthy of this same adoration and worship. So glorious is this good ending that all creation joins in the worship of the Lamb. Did you notice that? Look at verse 13. John said, I heard every creature. What a sound this must have been. I mean, it must have been amazing to hear all the angels, the myriad of angels. Now he says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Same adoration, same worship. And then verse 14, the four living creatures said, amen, let it be so. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. It is the supreme picture of the creation magnifying the glory of God. Every creature, every created thing in heaven, on earth, and under the earth declares Christ worthy of honor and glory and praise forever and ever. Every creature that was declared unworthy by the angel to take the scroll now praises Christ for being the worthy one. Declaring the Lamb to be the one that we are to worship too. Revelation chapter 5 is a picture of the end of the story. God and the Lamb being worshipped by all creation, not just eternally, but joyfully. Joyfully, my beloved, just as God had purposed in the very beginning. Jonathan Edwards, the great 18th century theologian and pastor, he argued that God's purpose, God's purpose in creating the universe was to display the value, the magnificence of his own glory. So why is everything here? Why are we here? God created all that is seen and unseen to display the value, the magnificence of his own glory, of who he is. And then, Edwards argues, that the creation's purpose is what? To glorify God joyfully. God created everything to magnify his glory, and creation is to respond in worship of him joyfully. He put it like this, listen. Edwards writes, the happiness of the creature, that's us, Consist in rejoicing in God. Your happiness is your rejoicing and worshiping and praising God. By which, Edwards writes, also God is magnified and exalted. John Piper rephrased this to a contemporary saying that most of you have probably heard. Piper said, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in us God's glory is most manifest in us when we are most satisfied, most happy, most joyful in Him. Not our marriage, not our children, not our work, not our finances, but in God. 
In other words, what Edwards was describing is what we're seeing taking place here in Revelation chapter 5. It is a glory-giving, glory-receiving, eternal cycle. So God makes his glory known in what? All of his holiness and then the redemptive work of Christ. All of his glory is made known. Man responds to God's glory in worship, joyfully giving our lives to love and serve and obey him. And then his glory is magnified even more in us when we find our complete and total satisfaction in him, causing us to worship him more, and he's glorified more, and it turns forever and ever the glorification of God in our worship of him. The end of God's story, which goes on for eternity. The angels and all creation in Revelation 5, they worship God and the Lamb this is profound now because that's what they wanted to do most. That's what they desired most. They weren't bowing down and crying out and singing new songs reluctantly. And they certainly were not doing it by force. It came from their hearts. And this is the type of worshiper that God seeks for his eternal glory. You say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? Our Lord and Savior in John chapter 4 was having this amazing dialogue with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he said this to her, listen, he said, the hour is coming and is now here. Jesus said, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Hearts truly captured by the holiness of God and the sacrifice of the Lamb, hearts truly captured will strive to live lives of obedience to God because they know that their loving obedience to the Word of God, living a life, following Christ, is not only most glorifying to God, but listen, here's the most profound piece that Edwards was trying to make. It's the most satisfying way to live. It brings the greatest joy and the greatest happiness and the greatest satisfaction when you live in joyful obedience to the word of God. You say, that sounds so contrary because when I want to sin, that's what I want to do most. And that's against the word of God. Yeah, but then you do, and what happens? It's not good, is it? I mean, you're tempted and you sin, and the sin brings about death in your life. Edwards was right, Piper was right, because that's what the Bible says. When we worship God in all that we do, not only is God most glorified in us, but we will be most satisfied and most joyful in him. So let me close with this question. Is that your life? Does that describe your life? Do you work and play and study and pray and love, and serve, and eat, and drink, all for the glory of God. All to please God in all that you do, every word that you speak, every thought that you think, every action that you take, is it purposed for God's glory? So that when people see you and how you live, they say, that God of yours is a magnificent God. He is majestic in being because of your life. And does the pursuit of obedience for God's glory, listen, this is probably the hardest part to answer, does it satisfy your soul? In your obeying God to glorify God, are you filled with joy? 
that deep joy where you know there's nothing I'd rather have or do or be on earth than to pursue Christ in holiness. I don't want you to answer this quickly, my beloved, and I pray that you meditate on it all week. All creation worshiping the glory of God is the end of God's story. And how you are living your life now, by grace, in faith, for God's glory, or by your own strength, for your own glory, will determine the end of your story. It doesn't make any sense that you will spend all of eternity worshiping and glorifying God if you hate Him now, if you have no desire to worship Him now, if you follow Him reluctantly now, or because you feel like you're forced to now. Listen, my beloved, pursuing Christ and saying, well, if I don't follow Christ, if I don't become a Christian, if I don't make a profession, I go to hell, therefore I guess I have to. That's not salvation. Salvation changes the heart so that your desire is to obey and follow Christ. And in that obedience, you have your greatest joy and your greatest satisfaction. So I'm not talking about the general Maximus moments where you give your life to save Rome. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the small things. I'm talking about the day-to-day, dying to yourself, the small things, and living for God instead of yourself. And in so doing, finding the greatest joy and the greatest satisfaction you could possibly imagine. I'm talking about that 2 a.m. feeding, moms, that bring you great joy. Not only because you're caring for your baby, but listen, because you know God is glorified when you're being a good steward of his precious little ones. And you rejoice over that. It's rejoicing in the difficulties of reconciling broken relationships because God is glorified when you make peace with others and you find joy in that. It is being deeply satisfied, listen, it is being deeply satisfying serving your aging parents, not because the fifth commandment requires you to, But in serving them, you not only get to express your deep love for them, but you bring your heavenly Father glory as his faithful son or daughter. And you rejoice in that. It's enjoying making disciples, even when it's hard. Because you know that their spiritual growth means what? More glory for God. It's enjoying and receiving great satisfaction in using your gifts and talents to grow the church because you know to the degree that the church grows, more glory is given to God. And you rejoice in that. It's spending time in the word and prayer. It's gathering faithfully like this with brothers and sisters. It's engaging in community groups and discipleship groups and outreach ministries for the simple reason that you really want to. Well, there's a novel thought. Obedience to God because I want to. Because I rejoice in it. Because nothing brings me greater satisfaction in life than to follow my Savior. It's striving to keep your eyes pure from all that wants to infect them because your Father is pure and you know that without holiness no one will see God. 
It's staying the course of faith when times are hard, not because there's no other place to turn, and there's no other place to turn, but that's not the compelling reason. You stay the course, you persevere in the midst of suffering because you know in so doing it reveals just how good and glorious your Father is, and you rejoice in that. My beloved, it is being, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, afflicted but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always, listen to this, always carrying in the body in the body, the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies so that the glory of the Lamb of God is revealed to the world through us every moment of every day in all that we do. This is just a small piece of worship, what we do here on Sundays. Your entire life is to be in worship to God, bringing him honor and glory and finding great satisfaction in all that. My beloved, it's in knowing that your story in this life must come to an end. It must. Because the Lamb of God was worthy to take the scroll and fulfill God's plan of redemption, dying and rising, your story does not have to end in judgment and death. But by grace through faith, you can be like the angels and all creation, finding your greatest joy and your greatest satisfaction in worshiping God. You can sing along with them, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Saints, in the power of the Spirit, I want to encourage you to strive to worship God and the Lamb by bringing Him glory in all that you do, big and small. And not only will you find your heart and soul deeply satisfied, but your ending will be a good ending. It will be a God-glorifying ending forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we want to be like Philip this morning and and say to you, show us yourself and we will be satisfied. Show us your holiness. Show us the Lamb that our hearts might be so deeply satisfied in you that we will, in fact, with everything that we do, Lord, we will do it for your glory and honor. We know one day, Father, this is how the story ends, that all creation, because of the work of the Lamb, all creation will give you glory and honor and power forever and ever. In light of that truth, Father, I pray we as your people would live like that now, that we would sing that new song now with how we live today, tomorrow, this week. Father, transform us by your grace to be a people who bring you honor and glory, and are satisfied in that. This is a work that only your spirit can do. And so I ask that you would take the words that have been proclaimed from Revelation chapter 5 and by your spirit change us. Do not leave us the same this week, Father. Do not let us continue to seek after saviors who have no power to save. Get our eyes fixed on Christ. Cause us to see him clearly to love him dearly, 
and to follow him with every step we take. I pray you would do this, Father, not only for your glory, but for the joy of your people, that we might find the greatest satisfaction and the greatest joy in our glorification of you. I ask all these things in the name of the Lamb who is worthy. Amen.